part of the joy of 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 being in in medicine is 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 learning you know many people i think come to the field as lifelong learners and what we've learned over the last few years is not only is it lifelong learners but we've learned in many ways that we love timely information but we also love human interaction you're listening to parallax from radcliffe cardiology in association with makeadent.org here is your host ankur kalra md Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode of Parallax. So we just um, concluded uh, the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions last week. Um, and, you know, I was um, you know fortunate to be one of the presenters um, at the meeting. Um, you know, AHA is is one of the most important scientific sessions annually um, and um, uh, brings together science, you know, cutting edge science that changes practice um, at the bedside. Um, you know, from all over the globe. Um, so, in, and this year, um, it was uh, in Chicago at, at the at the McCormick um, Convention Center. Uh, so, with me today is is a name that needs no introduction. He is a professor of medicine at Duke, and he is the chair of the scientific sessions uh, for the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions. My guest on today's show is Dr. Manesh Patel, um, and he is going to. Uh, take us behind the scenes for what AHA has been for him and was for him this year and uh, you know what we learned um, or garnered uh, you know, from from 2022 so Dr. Patel thank you so much for doing this for us and welcome on the show I can't wait to get started oh yeah thanks for calling me Banesh but thank you for having me and listen um, great work in, in in submitting and presenting and I think part of the joy of 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 being in in medicine is 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 learning you know, many people, I think, come to the field as lifelong learners. And what we've learned over the last few years is not only is it lifelong learners, but we've learned in many ways that we love timely information, but we also love human interaction. And so the opportunity to be in Chicago with people again for the American Heart Association scientific sessions was truly um, exciting. Uh, we've also learned that having virtual, at least uh, streaming real-time sessions and having these kinds of events where we do podcasts to get people information while they're on their drive or working out or other things like that, it's really valuable. So thanks for having me. And I'm happy to go through the scientific sessions and sort of how we think about it. It, it has to be a daunting task uh, that, you know, with so many submissions from all over the globe, uh, you have to pick which abstract is going to feature in the late breaking science session, which abstract is going to be a moderated poster session, which abstract is, is good for, you know, the, the, the poster session. So as someone who uh, is funneling all these abstracts into different avenues and, and different topics, how do you how do you get about handling that job? Yeah, it's it's a great question. First of all, as as you likely know, the the American Heart Association or, or many of these groups, but certainly the American Heart Association is a is a huge global community. We have we have people on the scientific sessions programming committee that are over a uh, hundred and thirty some individuals in different councils. But we also have people who submit and review abstracts in different ways. So I'll sort of go through the science part, and then we can talk about the meeting and sort of the, the things that we saw. But how do, how do we build the sessions or think about the scientific sessions? And so the scientific sessions at the American Heart Association have several aspects. We have an invited program where people invite, uh, you know, international speakers who can give us updates on different topics. And there, the Clinical Scientific Sessions Programming Committee, whether it's population basic translational, 
clinical science uh, groups all get together and say, what are the areas that we need? And amongst those three big categories, there are several sub councils and categories, as you can imagine, uh, children's health, uh, you can imagine uh, ATVB or, or BCVS. These are groups that think about, uh, our, you know, every part of thrombosis, vascular biology. Um, and then you have, you know, uh, population health science too. So it's a broad group. The invited program actually, as it turns out, is not the largest part by any stretch. You know, we have about, we had about 700 sessions. Of those 700 sessions, 500 were actually abstract sessions. So there's only about 200, importantly, invited programs where we try to cover those. And those are very unique, as you know, likely now we have, you know, women in cardiology, early career mentoring, and we'll also have, you know, surgical management of cardiogenic shock along with interventionalists. So it's a broad set of topics. The abstracts, uh, that's like any scientific group. We open up for scientific sessions, abstract submission. Anybody with an interesting abstract then can find the field of interest. And when they go to submit and they submit, we had over more than 4,000 abstracts submitted, several thousand more. But then those get graded and based on, again, blinded independent grading, meaning that the graders are reviewing these abstracts without uh, the ability to... Uh, see the uh, the location of the abstract submitter. They're just seeing the scientific submission. They give a score. We often have two sets of people giving scores so that the abstracts have been scored by several people. And then those that are scored and reviewed by these groups get checked, selected to be either posters or oral abstracts. One, depending on theme, sometimes depending on, on um, the content and the score. That's how we do, I'll call standard abstracts. And then I'll take a moment more to talk about late breaking science or featured science. And then See if you have questions around that. Uh, Late-breaking science and feature science is intended for those things that are really uh, where science is coming uh, and getting supported. First, first-time presentations that are felt by the submitters to be really impactful. That can be large clinical trials, but interestingly, it can also be first-in-man experiences. At this year's uh, scientific sessions, we had the, the first 12 patients with the amyloid cardiomyopathy getting CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing therapy, and it's a phase one study, but was scored high because it's the first time that something like that with a potential for breakthrough technology was presented. Uh, but the same time we had a, you know, the 30,000 patient village doctor uh, blood pressure management study out of China. Uh, so you can have randomized trials with large populations or you can have these types of uh, submissions. So the late breaking science, featured science submissions this year had 184 submissions. We were blessed. Uh, we want to make it easy. We want people to feel that this is a big stage. They're millions upon billions of impressions they get when they present their work. Uh, those 184 submissions then again, based on some topic areas and themes, get sent to over 60 individuals around the world that are reviewers for this annually for the American Heart Association. Uh, they vary and they change the reviewers do, but they have a sense of reviewing them and they're asked to review them for impact, scientific methodology, and uh, novel or innovation. And uh, those scores then come back and then we get together in a room and try to find ways. We had so many fantastic sessions and opportunities this year that traditionally we have seven or eight late-breaking science sessions. This year we had nine late-breaking science sessions and nine featured science sessions. So we were blessed to have a, a lot of really um, sort of high-impact novel science being presented at the American Heart. Yeah, no, no that's, a, that's a lot of submissions. And uh, so, I mean, in terms of... Um, you know, these 60 individuals, which I'm, I'm sure are experts in their respective fields uh, who review these submissions. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's got to be a daunting task to, um, to decide, you know, what all science to feature and what all science 
uh, to not feature. And, you know, what happens to the science that is not featured? Because I'm sure if someone thinks that that's good enough for a late-breaking science session stage at, at the American Heart Association, it's got to be good science. Uh, does Do those abstracts then get funneled into, you know, other avenues for presentation, you know, whether it's moderated poster sessions or, uh, you know, you know, key topics or... Yeah, it's a great question. You know, it's a, it's a something we've struggled with. We try to inform people that, of course, we want them to submit late-breaking science, and 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 it's a high bar. Even as I said, with the with the 184 submissions, there were some really good studies that might not have made it to the to the main stage or the featured science stage. The best we can, we try to make space for those that are still pretty well scored into some places. However, there are likely abstracts that are submitted that are very high quality that may be better than some that were submitted as usual abstracts that don't make it into the program, unfortunately, because of the timing of how things are going. Remembering that in July, people submit abstracts and we make decisions by August or something. Late breaking science closes in September and then we have to make decisions pretty quickly to get into November. And so we've often had people ask us and we've, we've put that on our list of ways to submit or, or, or try to, can we can we hold a few sessions for those that are fantastic? The problem is, of course, year to year, we don't know how many session submissions are coming and what the quality will be. And so um, what we've tried to do is encourage people, if it's not really truly late breaking, you knew that you had this abstract data to consider submitting it to the regular program. You can, of course, always then submit it to the late breaking science program. And if it gets accepted, then we would pull it from the regular poster or moderated poster sessions program. But if you only submit to late breaking science and don't submit to the regular, mainly once because maybe this data is not coming out till then, then we are trying to keep some space to make sure that the highest quality science still gets presented. Yeah, no, no. So switching gears, um, in in your experience as as the chair for the scientific sessions, you know, over the past uh, few years, um, tell us some of the highlights um, you've which, you know, according to you, you think are highlights for you, assuming that role, uh, maybe, uh, you know, some of the, the key signs that was presented over the years, which, uh, you know, you, you felt that you were fortunate to, to pick, um, you know, as signs that should be presented at AHA and, uh, you know, maybe some of the background stories around how you, how you got to select those topics and select those papers and, and what those papers have done for, you know, cardiology for our patients for the field. Yeah, so you know the the great thing about the American Heart Association scientific sessions is it's it's a it's a great platform. You know, we like to say, uh, and this was our theme this year. You know, one world together for science. It's a place where we've had the ability to present science that we believe will impact human health and hopefully impact the way we think about practice. A lot of meetings do that. Uh, the, the, one of the values of the things we've seen at the American Heart is that we've been able to do that at this meeting, like other large cardiovascular meetings, but in some ways across multiple domains. And what I mean by that is um, if, if you looked at the, the science that even was presented this year or over the four years that I was been, you know, the vice chair or the chair of the sessions committee, we've had the, the, the distinct honor to have things that are just um, truly impressive. And we want to highlight the effort and the work people have put into it. 2019, for example, now before COVID, uh, you know, we, we were blessed to have the ischemia trial, which was long awaited. And I think informs our clinical practice on how we think about revascularization in patients with cardiovascular disease. No matter how you see the world, that trial is likely to be not replicated, an important presentation that Dr. Hockman did there. And then, of course, this year, uh, Dr. Hockman, Dr. Marin did there. And then this year, we had the extended follow-up 
at the six and a half years with some follow-up and information again on what does it really mean with mortality with some interesting but conflicting findings that you know uh, in long-term patients uh, cardiovascular mortality might have improved but their non-cardiovascular mortality didn't so that the mortality didn't change so we'll have to learn about it but that that trial was really i think at that time impressive and in 2019 i'll just say at that time one of the highlights for me is we started to really focus on health equity and there are statements or or or, or movements that make you think about how we can be better for health around the world. At the HA in 2019, one of the statements that I remember with Donald Lloyd Jones at that time thinking about was that there was a statement that, you know, your, your budget is a moral document where you spend your money is a moral document about what you believe in. And so both for the American heart, but I think about it from our health system perspective, about every perspective that that was really a meaningful thing about thinking about health equity. Uh, in 2019, we also introduced the puppy booth. I told you, you know, a fun area to where we could actually have people, reduce their blood pressure, managed to see some, some small puppies. And that came forward this year. And I think face-to-face people really enjoyed it. If I think about the science that's really potentially moved the needle, even during the COVID years, we had some pretty impactful uh, data, both on from the COVID registry of American Heart, but we also saw data around flu vaccine and, and, and how that affects cardiovascular mortality. But just to give you a breath of this year, in 2022, of the late breakers and some of the featured science, in these nine sessions, we had things from large randomized trials on the first day, looking at uh, two different diabetic, diuretic strategies, uh, you know, torsamide versus furosemide for people with heart failure, or chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide for people with blood pressure problems, or a pemfibrate, a, a new fibrate compared to placebo in patients with triglycerides. Those three large randomized trials we thought affect common clinical questions that every, almost every clinician taking care of patients would see at some point. That's balanced against the following sessions that, as I said, had first in human CRISPR-Cas9 editing of the TTR gene or iron in heart failure or, you know, strategies to keep people out of the hospital in heart failure. The interventional session had a thousand infants under one randomized in this CT surgical network for kids getting stress to steroids or or placebo in kids who are going through congenital heart or heart surgery, less than one. At the same time, we had, um, you know, CTSAMI, which was a, a Chinese herbal and acute MI that showed a significant benefit. And we're, we're blessed to see that more learning about what is in that, uh, in that, in the herbal and how do we think about ways of of bringing that or replicating that across the practice. We had a randomized trial with ECMO in, in cardiogenic shock. We had multiple studies on blood pressure, both strategies to improve blood pressure and new agents for blood pressure. We had strategies for atrial fibrillation management. The best CLI trial this year, the randomized trial of endovascular versus surgical therapy for critical limb ischemia will impact practice, I think, for years to come and hopefully help with health equity across that sort of area where people have limbs that are unfortunately being amputated. And then I think the world of cardiovascular medicine is moving towards more, I say, precision and population precision. We saw the Ocean A dose study looking at an agent, a small interfering mRNA agent to look at um, to ways to inhibit LP little a production, while we also had respect EPA to add more data around EPA. We had EMPA kidney that told us more about SGLT2 to prevent you know, those, those, those worsening renal dysfunction events in patients with kidney disease. So, you know, if you think about uh, the, the AHA late breakers and you think about the science that I just mentioned, across the spectrum, we have 
large randomized trials. I didn't even mention the bival rudin versus unfractionated upward one that Dr. Stone presented, but we had large randomized trials across a big spectrum from heart failure, blood pressure, lipid management, to strategies for getting people to be adherent to infants under one, TTR gene therapy, best CLI. Um, we had a randomized trial of CTFFR and strategies of precision versus usual testing and bival rudin and and then, you know, randomized trials with ECMO. So if you just think about the breadth of what one could go to, it's quite impressive. And maybe the most, you know, talked about study, one of the more talked about studies at the meeting was a smaller study out of Cleveland Clinic, but it looked at resuvastatin versus placebo versus, you know, six other herbals, including garlic and red yeast rice and others, and, and showed that resuvastatin lowered your cholesterol, LDL specifically, and the others had no difference compared to... Uh, placebo in regards to the LDL reduction. So these kinds of trials that are powerful and give us some information are useful in our day-to-day -day clinical practice. Yeah, no, just uh, an incredible breadth, you know, like you said, you know, from interventional cardiology to heart failure to prevention, uh, to population health, to precision medicine. Uh, I mean, it's just, um, uh, you know, for... Um, for a, for a clinician scientist, it's like, uh, you know, being a kid in a candy store, um, you know, just so much to absorb and so much to learn. Um, the one, um, and, you know, uh, I apologize if you mentioned it, but I, uh, I'm just going to mention it again, because I think to me, that was, uh, very impressionable for me personally. And that was strong HF. Yeah. I should have said it to you, you know, another important study that was a featured science study was strong HF, which was a randomized trial, I think simultaneously published in Lancet looking at usual care for patients with heart failure versus rapid escalation to getting to guideline-directed medical therapy after discharge and significantly reduced not just hospitalization, but trends towards improving cardiovascular events too. Yeah. So, you know, like you said, really impressive study published in The Lancet. And, you know, what was impressionable the most to me about this study was that, um, you know, that I mean, all you need to do is is make make certain that you're actually prescribing what is already available and in your armamentarium uh, to you know impact lives uh, meaningfully and um, and and to um, you know sort of impart that knowledge to to colleagues because you know I've seen this in person as a practicing cardiologist that uh, there is a lot of inertia around uh, initiation of quadruple background medical therapy. Now, in part, it's because of the economics. Yeah, of these yeah. of these drugs, but you know, I think in part it's also is because of the uh, the level of comfort uh, for our colleagues. You know, for some reason, uh, you know, they feel that SCLT two is a diabetic drug, or uh, you know, the MRA should be initiated by the nephrologist. And you know, I I think that you know what this trial clearly has driven home, at least for me, is that no, I mean, we need to take the onus on ourselves um, to timely start the quadruple. Uh, backbone uh, of of therapies in in patients with you know heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and and you know by doing that and by rapid escalation we can actually impact lives we can impact their lives and we can impact their longevity so uh, you know um, again you know a great trial to demonstrate that implementation science actually can save lives yeah that's an example of a study that was stopped you know by the IDMC for this benefit right and so we get that trial presented and submitted right on the cusp of being able to present it to the American Heart Association. And it's, um, 
it was featured in one of the news conferences. And so this highlights, as you said, the, the opportunities we have at any of these scientific sessions. And some of them are, if we could implement what we know, we would have the greatest impact on health today. And strong heart failure tells us that not only if we implemented it, but if we rapidly implemented it, we could improve our patient outcomes. And there could have been some people with questions around saying, is that really true? People who I think rightly could have said, are there deleterious effects if you try to implement it so fast? But so I think it added a lot in the sense that it, it tells us, I'll call it in our, in sort of my mind thought that the, um, that these scientific sessions or whenever I go to meetings, I hear about things that I consider on the start of an innovation cycle. And then I hear about things that tell me, I, uh, me and our groups and our system should be better. Uh, so the last mile of care, implementing care, strong heart failure really powerfully tells you that. At the same token, you know, I, I'll just highlight for me, if, if uh, going into the meeting, I was interested, you know, why we put transform DCP for chlorothaladone hydrochlorothiazide and prominent first is that, well, those were common questions, but if you would have asked people ahead of time, I'm not sure all our heart failure doctors would have said transform was going to be um, neutral with regard to whether torsamide had led different effects compared to furosemide. And some will rightly so said there may not have been enough precision with the endpoint, et cetera. The DCP chlorothaladone versus hydrochlorothiazide, I would have thought at least based on available evidence at that time, people would have felt more comfortable with chlorothaladone. There was evidence we all had and others and a well done study in the in the VA where all the participants were on hydrochlorothiazide, but they got randomized in a very innovative way, right? You consented the physician, primary care physicians consented, then asked the patients and then using the VA pharmacy, took patients who were on hydrochlorothiazide, randomized them to a similar dose of chlorothaladone, one could argue both doses could have been a little bit higher or could have been to study doses that were proven, but it's practice. And those are, you know, most people are on 25 of hydrochlorothiazide instead of 50 and et cetera, that there wasn't a difference in blood pressure. It wasn't different in clinical events. So that at least both of those studies would have told me that in, in, instead of switching agents, we should focus on getting people to the right dose. And I think that's a, a message, a little bit like the strong heart failure message on implementation. Yeah, no, um, absolutely. Um, so I'm just going to switch gears here from, uh, you know, discussing about trials that were presented at, at this year's meeting uh, to, you know, some of the questions that I've always, um, you know, wondered uh, as as someone who submitted to all these um, all these uh, opportunities within the American Heart Association annual scientific sessions, uh, you know, at, at different, I mean, as, as certainly as, as a fellow in training, but also as early career. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, I've, I've never been a recipient of any of these council awards, but um, the one thing which would intimidate me as someone who would submit to all these councils would be, um, you know, first of all, um, just how these, uh, um, first of all, the names of the, and the abbreviations of the councils would intimidate me for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, no, yeah, there's, there's, it, it is one of those, you know, the things we deal with at the American heart, which I, I myself, right. So I would say that I initially uh, was on the clinical council and was in the clinical council on the cath and interventional committee, mostly because I, as an interventionalist, I, I understood those things. I could say, oh yeah, I, I can understand being in the clinical council on cath and interventional committee, but yeah, we have epidemiology and prevention. We have uh, radiology and intervention. There's cardiopulmonary critical care resuscitation. There's, as you said, arteriosclerosis, thrombosis, vascular biology. So all of these, you know, w when you have a big tent, there's a lot of different I'll say communities and figuring out which community to be in. It's always one of those things that we want to make sure we're open to and get people the ability to go through different parts of their career. 
Yeah, so so that would, uh, you know, I don't know why for some reason would intimidate me, but then I, I think I got a handle of, you know, what these councils are all about. And once I did, then I would look at opportunities within these councils because I think once you're a once you're a premium professional member, you could ascribe yourself to two councils. Uh, yes. Yes. And, and you know, once you do that, then you could apply for opportunities within those councils. You know, whether these are, you know, awards at at various stages of your career. So I would apply to these awards and the application process actually is, is fairly streamlined, I would say. So kudos to AHA and, and to everyone in the organizing committee for making the, the process streamlined. It's it's straightforward. It, you know, it, you have to check a few boxes um, and then you have to you have to submit your science and also submit your letters, which is fine. Um, the the one aspect which, you know, I think from from being on the other side. So it's it's a great opportunity for me to ask you this question is, how do you grade um, these uh, award submissions? Um, you know, for, for example, you know, I, I'll tell you the, the, the paper that we presented, which uh, at AHA last week uh, on the 7th, uh, which was a simultaneous publication in the European Heart Journal, was, was something which I submitted for the Sam Levine Award as early career. And it did not get accepted. Now that that's fine, not a problem. I'm just putting, I'm just giving this example. What what is the what what is the threshold or the benchmark or what are some of the some of the key ingredients? And this is for the listenership because I, I do know that a lot of the listenership for the for for Parallax are you know residents, fellows in training and early career. So I think this will be very helpful for them to have this information from you as to what all is the council looking for for picking up the recipients for these awards. Yeah, no. So first of all, you know, kudos again for submitting and getting it published in the European Heart Journal. And I think when we think about the science, um, you know, as we can all imagine, there is always some discretionary things that may happen in the science. But for these committee groups, I will just say it's a fairly, it's been at least for the years that I've seen it, uh, a group of people uh, often in the committees that vary, and I want to be clear, they have uh, diverse individuals with diverse expertise who are doing different parts of either the science or the clinical practice, depending on which committee and which award it is. And they've done it for several years, looking across several, usually they've done it in two to four year stints to get a sense again of what the applications look like. They tend to have, as I've highlighted for a lot of our abstracts, blinded process where the individuals submitting are not known, but the, the abstract or the science is reviewed by two, at least two independent reviewers. And then those reviewers and the scores are then tabulated. And then the groups are in a committee where they review those and highlight strengths and weaknesses they saw in different ones and come to what I'll call finalists. And then at the finalist stage, they actually do presentations and have to answer questions. And then for some of those awards, that leads to them. So, you know, what I would say from the American Heart Association, and, and I'll just share again, I've certainly submitted and not won plenty of these actually at the American Heart or other meetings, occasionally gotten into certain stages. And what I find and what I hope people get is that um, first inclusion in the, in the AHA is about making sure anybody from any group who's interested in areas can be a fellow in training. So there's obviously fellow in training programs with registration opportunities in a variety of ways to get those people to uh, the meetings, but also in the committees. Uh, there's an HBCU scholar program that the American Heart has now gone into, which has brought in an entire new cr group of individuals younger in life to get involved. Then early career, there's early career sessions, but then early career locations and opportunities within the council. So another opportunity to get 
sponsorship or people in, which I think is important. And then for these analyses and or possible scientific submissions, I think they're submitting the abstract for the meeting and then submitting it for, let's say, one of the awards is, is a good exercise. I wish I had a better answer on, on how any one piece of science gets selected by this, but that's generally the process. And I hope that helps your listeners and others that are interested in this. Yeah, no, no, it, it certainly does. Uh, and, and thank you for, uh, you know, taking us through the process of how this is actually graded on the other side, you know, because it sort of is like, yeah, a, sure. it's almost like a firewall, you know, it's like you submit and then, you know, you don't know the, how, how the, you don't know the journey of your submission. I, I guess maybe, uh, you know, maybe this could be incorporated as a, as a little video, you know, like, you know, what happens once, once you submit your abstract to AHA, you know, just like uh, JAMA Network does does it for, you know, what happens to your manuscript once it undergoes submission. Yeah, that's true. And we've talked about at least the, the, the effort, remembering we're, we're the entirety of all of the work we've talked about is a volunteer effort amongst a variety of different people in different parts of any society or group. Colleagues, peer review in itself, as you can imagine, is, is volunteer in most, most, most journals and organizations. So we're often asking people to peer review, and we've started to try to say, as at least what we do for the finalists and some parts of these awards, we try to give people feedback on what parts were thought to be really high quality and what parts the where the things might have been felt to be opportunities to make it stronger. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you know, AHA is is such a is such a great platform. I think it it also becomes a catalyst for you to get your papers in for simultaneous publications. Now, you mentioned when you were talking offline um, that there were how, how many simultaneous papers that in published in high impact journals? Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure I know the full extent, obviously, because as you just highlighted, your abstract and others get simultaneously potentially published or published around the meeting at high impact journals. And so how that happens is fantastic. What we know from the late breaking science, featured science sessions, at least 30 to 35 simultaneous publications, 13 to 15 of which were in, I'll say, you know, large high impact general medical journals, whether it's Lancet, New England Journal, JAMA, others. Yeah, so uh, in terms of, um, um, you know, the, is there um, a partnership with with these journals or is it sort of? No, you know, it's interesting. What, what I would say, and I've said this to others, and I told you this, I think, as we came on, is I, I find that if you have, you know, if you have science that you think matters and it's getting into the American Heart, uh, American Heart Association meeting or they're getting into any scientific sessions, if you will, but certainly the AHA, that the journals are also recognizing it's gone through a peer review process with two people or more reviewing these abstracts and then these abstracts getting identified as being high impact and then being identified as potentially having an audience that cares about it. So that I think value um, turns into something that the journals also want to be part of. There are no official, um, uh, obviously aside from the American Heart Association journals themselves, uh, the circulation family of journals, there's no partnership by the American Heart Association with any of those journals. And all of those journals, including the American Heart Association's uh, journal circulation family of journals, they have equal access to anybody presenting any of the abstracts and the investigators have equal access to submit to any of them. So what we often do is I'll call it sort of matchmaking. We, we make sure the journals know what's being selected and the individuals who are presenting know 
that the journals are aware that these are going to be late breaking science or featured science sessions. And so that matchmaking then allows them to talk to each other and decide. And they've already been doing this for so many years that I'm not sure how much matchmaking there is aside from saying we we're officially now announcing who those are. And here's the, the key journal editors at these places that are um, interested in these and they often speak to each other and go from there. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's excellent. Now, you know, the, the final few minutes um, for the podcast, I, I do want to focus on, um, you know, you telling us about um, the other aspects of, of, you know, medical meetings, which, which is the, the non-scientific, I mean, yeah, I, I would say the non-scientific aspect because you, I mean, like, you know, um, catching up with colleagues from all over the, all over the world, perhaps, you know, not only nationally, but all over the world, you know, fostering new bonds, um, having, you know, for residents and for fellows in training, having opportunity for a face-to-face interaction with, you know, someone you look up to as, um, as your idol or, you know, like fostering new connections to become, uh, to identify mentors, you know, across institutions. Um, how do you foster these non-scientific connections when you are planning um, a convention like AHA? How do you, how do you make sure that, you know, you're not, um, you know, for lack of a better, better word, overpopulating days so that you have those, you have that downtime, you know, people can uh, get to see each other, talk to each other, meet each other, form these connections. Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, I, you know, one, one would say, why, why do we go to meetings in a digital world when you can th- see things on streaming and you can read them simultaneously, as you said? And I would say fundamentally, um, what we recognize, I think at the American Heart Association Scientific Sessions, but your listenership does too, as they go about their day, I think is that, the, that we're all sort of social beings and we want to have interactions with others. And, and we've learned that more than any other time over the last few years during COVID. But certainly when we think about scientific sessions or meetings, we, we try to come up with ways in which we can uh, build time and space where people can interact. And when I say build time and space, there is both familiarity with how people go to meetings and see things, and then there's newness. And so what we try to do is make sure those things that people have valued for years, I'll call them the the ability to interact and discuss science and, and network, uh, and, and that's often around poster sessions, moderated poster sessions, presentations. That's That's something we do by making sure there's time during the middle of the day or at the end of the day when the people will be in front of their posters or people will have the opportunity to have a moderated poster and there's an audience. The second is we build buzz. We have the hard hub in the middle and we say right in the middle of it, here's the early career and fit lounge. So if you're a fellow in training or early career, come hang out here, get some coffee and others can come. And then in that space, we'll have mentorship lectures, conversations with, you know, people like Clyde Yancey or others that uh, Michelle Albert, our current president for American Heart Association, who's inspirational to be in there and say, what are their journeys? Well, how can they help you? Well, this year we tried something called the Brain Date Lounge, where we actually on the app, you could say, I'm interested in this topic. I'm interested in this topic. Okay, we're going to meet here and discuss that topic. We'll have to sort of see how, how much the electronic, I'll call it uh, touch point versus running into people, getting introduced by colleagues works. Uh, we had the wellness challenge with people, um, you know, counting steps and playing sort of called gamification. Uh, although I, <laughs> some people had, you know, a hundred and some thousand steps. So I don't know if they were running continuously at the meeting or just how fit they are, but there were some really impressive step uh, from around the world. Um, so those are, those are the simple things that we do to try to engage that. But as you know, it's a lot of happenstance and space and, um, 
and then hopefully inspirational stuff. So we don't want to pack the meeting. We recognize there's a lot of information. Just as you highlighted, there's a lot of people who want to present abstracts. And there's a lot of space we want to do it. We also try to have sessions at the American Heart Association that are tied directly to the mission of hoping to help people have equitable health and longer, healthy, healthier lives. And so that, that the focus on, on both health equity and access to care, and then, of course, thinking about what the mission of the American Heart Association is, gets us things that, at least for this year, for example, the opening session that I got to be a part of, which was, you know, moving science to public health. We did that as the opening session because we thought we're going to hear a lot of science over the next few days. How do we do that through policy, payment, other things to turn it into public health? As somebody as powerful as the American Heart Association, as a group of individuals and as an association of volunteers and fundraising, how does that interact with the Food and Drug Administration with Dr. Caleb being present or two U.S. Surgeons General, Jerome Adams from the Trump administration or Regina Benjamin from Obama administration or the World, World Health Federation president, you know, Fausto Pinto was there with Michelle Albert. I got to help moderate that. You get to hear different perspectives and hopefully inspires people as they go back to network and think about things that make a difference. So being in person is fantastic. Being in a city is, is, is often the case, whether it's in the U.S. or in Europe, these meetings give us an opportunity to go and spend some dedicated time. And, and then that dedicated time is interacting with people and, and hearing what they're up to and what science is motivating them or what changes they're making. So the way that meeting does that is, as I said, by making sure there's a sort of uh, almost like Brownian motion. Is there space where people can bump into each other and have these conversations? And then there's there's some time that's set aside to do it. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I certainly um, am grateful that we're back in person to attend these sessions. I, I the, the one reason, and I, I actually have a completely blank planner. Uh, you know, I, I do not want to inundate my planner with with having to attend sessions because I know that I'll have an opportunity to catch them online at some point in time. I, I just am I'm looking forward to impromptu run into, you know, friends and, and mentors and having those conversations in the hallways. Um and, and you know, just uh or just sitting in the lounge and, and catching up with friends and and then after the meeting's over, you know, having those having those dinners. You know, I think that's like the that's like a highlight for me for for any scientific session. Um, Dr. Patel, this has been a, a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for making the time to do this for Parallax. Um, any closing remarks you have for for our podcast and, and for Parallax and for the listeners? Oh, thank you so much for having me. And again, thank you for doing this. I, I think the the focus on 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 clinicians and cardiologists around the world, seeing both the science but the day to day life that your podcast has done is really impressive. So, congratulations. Oh no, thank you. Thanks a lot. Um, for all of you who are listening, um, please rate us or review us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify, among other podcast platforms. Um, you know, as as I've said before, uh, you know, we really value your feedback, and and we are here because of our listeners. Um, thank you for making us the the second best rated podcast um, among the fifteen cardiology podcasts according to Feedspot.com, and we'll be back another Monday with another guest. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. 
To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.